Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Hey there, it's another Thursday morning for P.I.'s Declassified. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to have my uh, guest this morning who's been on the show before. He's a great guest. I'm not going to tell you who he is yet, though. Um, just wanted to uh, send a shout-out to Jim Nanos and Nicole Cusinelli from PI Magazine, my wonderful sponsors, good friends. And also, uh, remind you, as I, as I do every time, remind you of the National Investigators Conference in New York, November 8th through the 11th. If you're interested Check it out. Go to the website at it's 2018investigators.com. All one word, 2018investigators.com. Okay, November 8th to the 11th. Uh, it's going to be fabulous. And then don't forget the Colorado Conference in Breckenridge, Colorado, uh, the September 13th to the 19th. And if you're interested in that one, if you're going to be close by during that time, it's PPIAC. P-P, like Paul, Paul, I-A-C, like Charles, dot org. Okay, so my guest today is a guest that has been on the show before, a great guest, Jamie Richardson. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Francie. Nice to, nice to talk to you again. Nice to, nice to talk to you as well. Yeah. So um, for people that, that didn't hear the prior show and, and don't know you, why don't you tell them a little bit about yourself? So I'm a uh, licensed private investigator. Uh, I have offices in uh, New York State and the state of Arkansas. Um, I've been an investigator over a decade. Uh, 90% of the work that I do is surveillance related. Um, my background prior to that is that I used to uh, used to be an investigator with the state of Florida doing elder abuse investigations. Mm-hmm. And that and that's the previously when we talked on the show, uh, we talked about elder investigations actually. Yes, yes, we did. And uh, I know you are a Marine. You're honorably discharged from the United States Marine. Thank you for your service, Jamie, because that's uh, a really important, uh, really important service. Thank you very um, much. And then, how, how did you get from Florida to New York and Arkansas? That's kind of an odd transition. Well, and it's funny you ask that because I actually have um, a little bit deeper and uh, of an interesting story about how I became. Came a PI and where my career started that you wouldn't find in a bio of mine uh, online. And so when I was a kid, I moved around a lot. Um, I lived in California, New York, Florida, Arkansas. Um, When I was back in the 1980s, I was around seven years old, and um, my my father and I had we came home one day. He picked me up from school, and we lived in a cul-de-sac in Northern California. While we're pulling into the cul-de-sac, there was a gold Pontiac Firebird sitting in the driveway. And my dad recognized the vehicle as his wife's, uh, one of his wife's colleagues' vehicles um, from her place of employment. So he parked down the street and we walked down 
to the cul-de-sac, and there was like this fence that curved around the uh, the cul-de-sac, and I stood behind the fence. There was a little knot hole in the fence, and I could see through the knot hole while my dad walked over to the to the front door, and he went inside, and there's this uh, college-age kid with my dad's wife in the in the house, and of course there was some activity going on that, you know, he didn't really want happening. So <laughs> now, okay. So wait a minute. So this was not your mom. This was no, this is my stepmom. Yeah, stepmom. Okay. So he escorted this uh, this naked man out of uh, the house. <laughs> he took his car keys and threw them in the uh, bushes, and the kid ran off down the street. And of course, he was never heard from again. My father filed for divorce, and the funny thing about it is that the Gold Pontiac Firebird is the same car that James Garner drove in the TV show The Rockford Files. Really? Yep. And do you know the story behind that? Um, Other than I used to watch, you know, The Rockford Files a lot when I was a kid. It was one of my favorite shows. Huh. Wow. Uh, He happened to have that car. Okay, it, was, so, it wasn't actually James Garner that was having the affair, but... No, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm glad you cleared that up. <laughs> right. So, okay, so how did that launch your career? Well, I, I think that it, into the whole the world of spying and investigations and stuff, and I didn't know it for another 23 years what I was actually meant to do, and... You know, all this time later, I, I love shows like, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes and James Bond shows and, you know, right. stuff like that. And then, of course, you know, after getting the job as an elder abuse investigator, it kind of launched me into what I do now. So, um, I think it all comes full circle and, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful where I'm at in life. And today, um, we're talking about uh, cohabitation investigations, which yep. kind of plugs right back into what you were talking about, how you got started. Interesting. Yep. So, uh, yeah. did your dad recover from that situation fairly well? Yeah, he's, he was fine. I mean, he had been married four or five times. Um, we, uh-huh. Actually, I lost him last year, but, you know, he lived a full life. You know, I think he was very giving and very understanding of people and very compassionate. So um, he definitely had a lot of adventures, him and I. Interesting. Did he ever do an investigation with you? He didn't. Um, he used, well, he he had a lot of different uh, career paths where at one point he played AAA baseball for the Atlanta Braves. Um, he worked as a corrections officer. Um, so he kind of... Uh, had had a lot of different um, backgrounds. I mean, a professional photographer. He did that for a while. But I learned photography from him, which actually helps me in what I do today. Interesting. Interesting. Yep. Yeah, I took my... Uh, I, oh. Periodically, when my mother would visit, I would take her on my investigations, and she, I think she was fairly shocked about what was going right. on. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, there's times, when you, especially when you're working matrimonial cases, it kind of makes sense that you have somebody there with you, you know, if you're in a bar or something like that, so that you're not just walking in by yourself and sitting at a yeah. bar for three hours. By You know, it's just, you stand out. So For sure, for sure. Yep. And I guess on cohabitation investigations, you do a lot of sitting around in bars, don't you? I, I do. Um, a lot of it's, uh, it's 
it's mostly all field work. I mean, there's some online stuff that you can do, but um, I I do I spend a lot of time in you know neighborhoods and um, pulling trash and um, you know following people around to wherever they go. Mm-hmm. So so tell me what a cohabitation investigation is. So cohabitation is when uh, you have uh, a couple that uh, that may have an intimate relationship um, where they would possibly be undertaking duties and privileges that are commonly associated with marriage, uh, such as living together, uh, maybe having intertwined finances, joint bank accounts. Um, they may have shared living expenses. Um, they may, you know, household chores. Um, maybe there might be recognized of having in each other's social and family circles as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. And... So, we commonly call that a living together arrangement, which happens a lot these days, actually. So, yep. why, why would you be called in to do an investigation like this? Well, I mean, usually what happens, the, um, you have situations where the, the husband or wife may be paying uh, spousal support, uh, financial support, and in situations like that, then... If you have somebody else that's in the house um, that may be contributing to uh, the finances, then, you know, you can take that person back to court and say, hey, look, you know, you've got somebody here that may be paying bills, and why should I have to if that person's doing that? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Probably is more commonly uh, about the female part of the relationship than the male. Is that true or not true? Um, you know, I mean, I think it's, you know, down the line. I mean, 50-50. I mean, you have the reasons for cohabitation, you know, in in the U.S. I mean, you're looking at things like it's a natural step in the dating process. Um, pe- people can cohabitate together to save money. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe the convenience of living, you know, together because maybe they live so far apart that they can't actually see each other as often as they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a need for one of the individuals to find housing, um, you know, the high cost of housing, you know, tight budgets in today's economy, you know, having a hard time finding jobs. Right. Um, and things like abuse and infidelity can also lead uh, to, you know, significant others looking for a safe place to go. And that can also lead to cohabitation. Okay, so um, is, it, is it typically... Um alimony that you're talking about child support or what what is it It, i mean it's yeah typically the um so alimony is you have a you know a husband or wife's court ordered you know provision uh to the spouse after the separation and divorced um Mm -hmm. which you know you're looking at it's basically financial support you know for that individual that the the husband or wife may have made significantly less money or contributed financially less in the relationship uh-huh. So that person may need the assistance to go ahead and live a, you know, a more normal uh, lifestyle. I mean, they may have had kids and, you know, she may have been a stay-at-home mom. And, of course, the husband was working and then, you know, you have a situation where now she has sacrificed her career and education to go ahead and raise the children. So there are circumstances in which it, it, it makes sense for somebody to be paying spousal support. Right, right. And and they have to pay it until 
it can be either um, proven that. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yes. It, uh, basically, it's until it's proven that uh, you no longer need it, or mm-hmm. until the point that the uh, the children reach the age of 18. Um, but it could, there could be other circumstances or arrangements or agreements um, that are made between the, the two parties. Okay. Okay. Yep. So, um, and, and if the person remarries, of course, that automatically cancels it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I guess child support gets involved here too, right? It does. I mean, I, I think that, you know, cohabitation cases uh, and, you know, child custody investigations are, you know, they kind of go along the same lines as far as information that you're collecting and looking for, but... Um, as far as uh, the, it, it, they do kind of intertwine as far as, mm. you know, uh, you know, you getting, you know, that child support and financial support from the other individual. So um, when you get a call, Jamie, how do you start? Give, give us the steps of uh, what you go through to perform these kinds of investigations. Sure. So I think that the, the first thing that's the most important thing is, you know, communication with your clients being prepared and having a good plan as, as to what you're going to do in an investigation, um, setting mm-hmm. up goals and benchmarks um, for your clients and keeping your clients in, into the loop of what you're actually doing. Um, yeah, of course, you know, our clients, they're not investigators. That's why they hire us. And, um, and typically on a cohabitation case, the average amount of time that I spend on a case like that may be anywhere between 20 and 40 hours. Uh, depending mm-hmm. on, you know, my client's budget. Obviously, the more time that they can hire us for, the more evidence we can collect. Okay. So I'm, I'm interested because one of the most difficult things with um, situations involving surveillance and we, when you don't know what you're actually faced with is how do you estimate fees? Not, I'm not talking about the amount, but the hours involved uh, that well, you're going to be charging the client. Okay, so the way that I, I figure that is that, and i give you an example. So an example would be, let's say a client uh, came to me and they said, well, my budget is uh, four to five hours, okay? What happens is that if, let's say I agreed to go ahead and do the work at four to five hours and I, I go into the field and we go out for one night. So I go out in the evening, you know, between 10 and midnight, and then I come back in the morning between 6 and 8 a.m., and let's say I do see a vehicle that's parked at the residence or I see some activity there that may indicate that somebody's living there. The problem with that is that just going out one time or two times does not is not enough information for the courts really to make a decision whether or not somebody's actually living there. Right. So you have to give yourself time as an investigator to go ahead and see something occurring over a period of time. Um, I've found in the cases that I've worked, it's usually you know, up to a week, you know, a couple of days of, of being out there um, so that you can look for a pattern between um, people coming and going and activities at the residence. It's interesting. It doesn't seem like the court would accept a week as being uh, evidence of cohabitation. I mean, you'd be surprised. I mean, I, I've had cases in, I'll give you an example. I had a case in, in Arkansas where I was out for, it was five, actually five days. And during that five days, 
Um, I I caught uh, the subjects uh, living together. They were uh, they were going to church together. They would go grocery uh-huh. shopping together as a unit. Uh, they uh-huh. would go to um, like the 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 significant other would drive my subjects' vehicle, which was like a minivan, and would be driving the kids to school, picking up the mail. So there's indicators that you know can show. Um, what what's actually going on. And it, so there are things that you can get in a very short period of time that can be helpful. Um, and, of course, you're right. I mean, there are situations where you may need much longer period of time to collect information. Yeah, I, th- I would think you could make the argument, the, the other person can make the argument, oh, well, they just came and stayed with me for a week. You know? Right, and, that, and, that's, and that's part of it. I mean, it's the, there are a lot of things that you can do. Um, an example would be you know, pulling the trash. You know, I've uh-huh. had situations where I pulled receipts, bank statements, bills, yeah. um, envelopes, medication bottles, um, things that really showed that, that there's more than just, you know, somebody visiting for a short period of time or overnight or something like that. For sure. Jamie, we need to take a really quick break, um, but I want to come back to this. This is interesting. We'll be right back. Great. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, 
Here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Jamie Richardson, an investigator, licensed investigator from New York and Arkansas, and we're talking about cohabitation investigations. So, um, so we were just talking about, you know, how you how you schedule fees. So when you're when you're talking to a client, I guess you develop first, you know, what they're looking at. So what would yep. be a typical call you would get? Um, I would have somebody that would call me looking to to prove that uh, their ex was uh, living with another individual, and then I would tailor my investigation around what they felt their needs were, you know, give them my professional recommendations based on what they're sharing with me. Okay, and then you come to the point where they're going to say, well, how much is this going to cost me? Sure. Sure. So at that point, in in cohabitation cases, I have an average amount of time that I spend. Now, every case is unique and different, and you may have circumstances where, let's say somebody lives in a very rural area, and you're trying to prove cohabitation there versus somebody that lives in uh, downtown Albany, uh-huh. where you may be, as an investigator, you may be able to blend in um, a little bit easier than than if I had to be up in the Adirondacks conducting an investigation. It's a case like that, and the Adirondacks is going to take a significantly longer period of time because of the challenges involved in collecting information. Okay. So um, give us an example of how you would uh, set it up in the urban area of, and then an example of how you'd set it up in a, in a remote area like at the Adirondacks. Okay, so in, a, uh, in an urban area, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to be collecting information from my clients about uh, the subjects, um, what things that they, vehicles they drive, uh, work schedules, personal schedules, whether there are children in the home, um, uh, maybe obtaining a list of activities. Um, if, let's say, one of the individuals goes to the gym, uh, maybe the other individual, maybe they go to church. Um, so you about collecting information, and I'd rather have more information than less. And uh, to start, you know, preparing and planning uh, how to conduct the investigation. And once I have that kind of information, which could also include, um, their, you know, having a list of their best friends or their neighbors that they're friendly with, you know, things mm-hmm. like that can help you plan for your investigation. Um, in a you know in an urban area now, as far as a rural area, you know it's it, it's a situation where you may need to do um, some spot checks or canvas and drive by of the residents um, on a number of different days and time before you actually get out there and do a full surveillance. Mm-hmm. And a, a canvas is going to help you determine where to set up your surveillance vehicle, how to set the surveillance up. And it's going to, if, if you were to go to, like, Google Maps and you looked at a, a picture of an address on Google Maps, what you see online may not be what you see when you get there. Right, of course. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the photos sometimes are, you know, three, four, or five years old. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. So, so you determine all this. Now, um, do you typically meet with your client in person or not? Um, it depends on, on my schedule. I mean, I'm always willing to meet with clients face-to-face if necessary. Um, majority of the time, though, uh, with, my, with my tight schedule, I'll, I will speak with them over the phone. 
Um, I always offer, you know, with my clients at the end of the investigation, time to sit down with them and go over their report step by step so they understand uh, what's in the report and, and what the information means and how to use it. And do you uh, typically work with attorneys as well on these kind of cases? Do a lot of times I have either the, the attorneys will call me directly because they have a client that's looking for um, uh, cohabitation investigation, or I will have a private individual who's working with an attorney on a cohabitation situation, and they will go ahead and connect me with their attorney. But it's generally the private clients that are, you know, hiring me directly. I mean, I did have one about a week ago that it was the attorney hiring me. So it goes both ways. Okay. All right. So, so you've uh, so you've met with the client, or you talked to the client, and you've determined you're you're going to need um, X number of days. Um, you and you charge them for travel time. Evidently, I'm assuming. I do. I in with with my firm, I charge office to office. In other words, my time starts when I leave the office, and then it ends when I return. I know that a lot of private investigators out there do charge for mileage. Um, mm-hmm. It's not something that I do. Um, I just kind of uh, cut that out, and I end up, you know, I I take care of it at the end of the year with my tax stuff. So, okay, okay, that's a that's a good tip. Um, okay, so you 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 say okay now, um, Mrs. So and So or Mr. So and So, I estimate that based on what we've been talking about, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, spend four days. I'm gonna have travel time. Uh, this is gonna be X number of hours at whatever fee you, you quoted them. Is that yeah. how you do it? Yep. Okay. And and what if they tell you that, uh, oh, I talked to somebody else and they could do it cheaper? What do we say then? Well, <laughs> uh, my response to that is that you get what you, you, get what you pay for. Yeah. Um, I know there are some firms out there that, uh, you know, advertise that, uh, they can connect you with investigators and uh, or you know other investigators that maybe they just started up so they're you know they may be you know out there trying trying to get some work and start their businesses which is great but the reality is that there's not really a need for us to go ahead and kind of drop our rates so much that you know if I mean, we have calls every day for stuff mm-hmm. and. You know, I'm very compassionate with my clients, very understanding, and I bend as much as I can, but there's a lot of people that I'm helping. So right. it, it's hard, hard for me as an investigator and a business owner to, to drop my rates too much. I mean, there, there are circumstances that I do it, though. Yeah, I mean, you have, periodically, we all have cases where we, you know, yeah. they pull at our heartstrings and we get emotionally involved and uh, uh, do it for a lesser rate, for example, but... Uh, but yeah, I mean, really, if you value your time, yep. and that's what we do, we sell our time, we sell our services, our time, if you value your time, and you do a good job, then uh, you don't want to cut back. That I do sure. the same thing. I mean, it you know, and it I'm just ha- makes sense. I mean, we're, we're all here to, to help each other, so. I always say, I'm happy to find, I'm happy to refer you to somebody that will do it for less, and then right. that's fine with me. <laughs> Right. <laughs> they don't usually take, them up, take me up on that, though. Anyway. Right. <laughs> All right. There you go. So, okay. Um, tell us, um, 
tell us about something that you've run into. I know you, you mentioned off, when we were offline that you had a case last week. Tell us about that. Okay. So I started a case in an undisclosed location, and I, I conducted a surveillance for a, uh, it was about five days. Um, I was out there um, every evening, um, every morning. Um, Saturdays were a little bit different because of the fact that you're, you're likely to see different type of activity on the weekends versus the week, um, depending upon somebody's work schedule. Okay, so mm-hmm. in other words, they may not be working on a Saturday, and they may be spending the day with the family doing activities on the weekend, you know, kids are out of school, those kind of things. Um, during the weekdays, you're going to, people are going to, you're not going to have people probably traveling much or, you know, doing, a, they might go out to dinner or they might go to a movie or something like that, but you're going to see people staying closer to home and doing those kind of things. And the funny thing about this one was that I, the first day that I, the second that I showed up in the morning, um, there was, there were trash cans on the curbs. In other words, I'd never been to this address before. I had done my research online. I went out to the address and there's trash cans at the end of the curb. Now, as an investigator, there could be information in those trash cans that could make or break your client's case. Uh-huh. So you have to make a, a quick decision as to, okay, is it safe to proceed in collecting this trash? So I knew that I was in, a, in an urban area, and I didn't have a whole lot of time. Now, when you are going to collect somebody's trash, there's some things that you're going to be looking for, and there are uh, situations that you need to be kind of prepared for. So in other words, safety issues, when to pick the trash up, legal issues, uh-huh. um, taking supplies with you, and those kind of things. So when I showed up, I, I went to, you know, I parked. I went to the, the trash cans, opened them up. There were two of them. One is a for recyclables, and one is for... Uh, you know, the regular trash. There were two bags in the trash. I opened them up. I looked inside, okay, and I, I reached, I had gloves on. I reached inside. I grabbed uh, two bags, and you, got, you have to kind of test the bags before you actually pull them out of the trash because you don't want to get in a situation where the bags rip or they're, you know, kind of thing, and you're walking across the street with trash trailing <laughs> behind you. So, so I take these, you know, I, I had to do this quickly because, you know, obviously you have situations where neighbors could be coming out of the house, people smoking on the front porch, having their coffee, um, somebody walking their dog in the morning kind of situations. So you need, you probably need to spend a few minutes beforehand just kind of scoping out the, the area before you do that. I was out there at, uh, you know, between 5 and 6 a.m., it's less likely the earlier you are there that people are going to see what you're doing. Right. Um, so I pull these trash, you know, these bags, and, of course, I had to go to a secondary location, and uh, I set up a tarp, and I went through everything that was in the trash. Now, the first thing that I noticed as soon as I took the bags out of my car is these little white things uh, crawling on some of my stuff in the back of my vehicle. Oh, great. And which was pretty disgusting because I didn't actually see them. I pulled the bags out of the trash can, so I've got maggots crawling around, and I'm actually more concerned at that point about the maggots in my car 
<laughs> in my vehicle than the trash bags anymore. Right. So I I did that. You know, I, I got rid of them. I, I went through, you know, I photographed, documented all the trash. Um, but there's things that, that you're going to be looking for. I mean, obviously receipts, bank statements, bills, uh, envelopes. You know, I think we mentioned that before. Right. Some of the worst things that I found in the trash have been maggots, condoms, moldy food, <laughs> diapers. You really have to be prepared, and you got to have pretty strong stomach to do this kind of thing. What about hypodermic needles? Yeah, I haven't found any needles yet, and I'm kind of grateful because you got to consider the fact that there'll be times that it'll be dark out, and yeah. you'll be, you know, showing up at the residence, and you really don't want to be putting your hand into a uh, a dark trash can when you don't know what's in there. Um, you know, I, there, I found things like shredded documents, and, and yeah. I, I, it was really funny to me that last time that I did, because it kind of made me feel like I was in, I had like a roll of, uh, of tape and I was putting this document back together. kind of made me feel like I was investigating Nixon all over again. <laughs> That's great. Well, I want to go back to the maggots. So, so let's, yeah. well, I want to know what you did. You got maggots in the back of your car. What, what did you do then? Well, I had these rubber gloves and I grabbed them one by one and <laughs> sent them to the afterlife. Okay. Uh, and you, you got them all. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I had to clear everything out, but yeah, I got them. Yeah, okay. All right. And that's kind of uh, about being prepared. I mean, you know, you never know what's going to be in a trash can, and, you know, uh, people will put anything in there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So, um, so let's talk about the legal issues a little bit on this, because this could be really dicey if you're taking somebody's trash. Because yeah, so, you know, our, our, our listeners may be surprised that this is even done. Yeah. Uh, I know. So with, with regarding to you know legal issues, one of the things that you need to be extremely cautious of is trespassing. If you if the garbage cans are at the end of the curb at somebody's property, then you have a right to go ahead and and pull that uh, because it's. And it's on the public right away. It's public domain. But the if you if the trash cans are up against the house, and you go onto their property, and you were digging around in their trash, there are a number of issues that could happen. I mean, you could be you know charged with trespassing, which you don't want. Um, right. Two, you have safety issues. You know, you have they may have security lights on their house. You have. Um, it's, it may be dark out. You don't know what's in the trash can, um, but you also have to consider noise control. So, in other words, when you're reaching in there and pulling things out, if you're pulling out uh, bottles that are clinking together and stuff like that, you mm-hmm. know that could be an issue. Is you're gonna you may alert your subject that you're doing an investigation, which right. can affect the rest of your entire investigation, and. You know, not to mention the fact that they may have cameras on the outside of the house that could be viewing everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. So you really have to kind of think about that in advance before you actually pull that trash, and you have to be, have a plan. That's a really good point. And, and I, sh- I should mention that some cities and counties have ordinances that uh, say that the uh, trash belongs to the uh, trash um the utility company that's picking it up. Sure, and 
I would say that, you know, anytime that you're going to partake in, in something like that, obviously you want to check with your local, you know, city, you know, ordinances and see what you can and can't do, um, uh-huh. or, you know, speak with an attorney. But um, where, so where I live, I mean, it's, it's not an issue. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, a lot of uh, cities across the country have adopted privacy laws like that. So it's well, those of you that are listening and thinking about doing something like this, it's well to be aware that uh, that could be a problem. Um, yes. And uh, some some ordinances just say you can't do it, period. You can't, yeah. that... that yeah. uh, and that, what, what that basically means is that you have to use other avenues to collect you know, the evidence that you're looking for. All right. That's all. Okay. All right. We're going to take another break, Jamie. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Jamie Richardson. We're talking about uh, cohabitation investigations, surveillance, pulling trash and getting documents out of the trash and dicey things like that. But I'm, you know, I'm wondering, um, you probably do cheating spouses uh, situations, right? I do. So New York is a no-fault state. Is Arkansas as well? Um, Yeah, so with... I'll say this much. I get I get a lot more calls for the cohabitation stuff than I do the matrimonial, and and I'm glad you brought that up um, because of the fact that what I've noticed uh, in the last, I would say, 
maybe four years or so, mm-hmm. especially in New York State, that we still get calls as investigators for matrimonial cases. However, the courts don't necessarily need the information or the proof of infidelity anymore, especially in right. New York. Right. And because of that, there's been a shift, in my opinion, um, for the things that our clients actually need. Now, I have private clients that will call me for peace of mind mm-hmm. for cheating spouses or, you know, uh, matrimonial-type cases. But what happens is that now the cohabitation, I think, is coming to the forefront and investigators are, are like, or at least I am, getting a lot more calls for cohabitation investigations because it's something that affects people's pocketbooks. Right, for sure. I can see that. Yeah. And is, uh, do you know if uh, Arkansas is a no-fault state? Um, I haven't had that. That hasn't crossed my, my desk as far as uh, that being an issue. I mean, I haven't had any conversations with any attorneys that have said we needed mm-hmm. proof of infidelity for uh, divorce purposes. Um, usually mm-hmm. what happens is that what they want is the financials and the relationship. And right. if there's financial information that our clients can't get or don't have access to, then certainly they can hire a private investigator to collect that information. And do you also get in the financial arena? Are you doing asset investigations as well? To an extent. Um, there are investigators out there that uh, just say that they can do bank searches and you know stuff of that nature. And the, the asset searches that I do... Um, Basically, the information comes from databases. Um, mm-hmm. so in other words, I'm pulling public record information versus a an investigator that might, you know, have an attorney that could do a subpoena for, um, you know, some bank record information. Um, but you, obviously, you know, you need to check with an attorney before you, you know, I mean, because you couldn't just pick up the phone and call a bank and say, "Hey, look, I need right. such and such bank info," because right. they're not going to exactly. get it. Ex- exactly right. And right. and we should mention that uh, it is unlawful to pretext for any kind of financial information. So that's not an option. Yeah, and, I, and of course, I, I'm not going to pretend to, I mean, that's not an area of expertise for me. So I'm not going, you know, it's not something that I do. Um, but um, certainly, if somebody needs uh, asset information in a legal, from a legal source, then that I legally have access to, then I'm more than happy to provide that information to my clients. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so uh, if an investigator was listening to this show or uh, and wanted to get into this type of work, what kinds of what advice would you give them? I would say that the, the most important things on cases like this is preparation, um, documentation of evidence. The timing of the investigation is extremely important, and I'll give you an example why. I had a client of mine about a year ago, and he hired me um, for more than the, the, the week that you and I have been talking about. So in other words, he mm-hmm. hired me over a, maybe a five- or six-month period. Wow. Okay? And what happened was that I was getting great information for a long period of time. And then all of a sudden, the relationship situation for that subject, uh, the un, you know, the other person, changed, and he that person was no longer living in the house. Hmm. So, in other words, if you're going to go to court 
and you're going to say that, well, my, my wife or my husband, my ex-husband is living with another person, then it's important that you you go to court when the person is actually still living there. <laughs> right. That makes sense. Because if, if they've moved out, they cleared out, you know, and they're no longer there anymore, then all you can do is go back to the courts and say, well, he was there for two months or three months or whatever. And then, of course, you're not going to... I think the biggest case that I had in cohabitation investigation, I saved my client over $100,000 for a 12-year period. So he was paying for my subject's condo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to the tune of... Thousand to twelve hundred dollars a month for you know twelve months times you know twelve years or whatever, so whatever that comes to, mm-hmm. and because of my proof of the cohabitation, I, I saved this man a lot of money over a twelve-year period. So had he hired me and then continued on after the relationship there ended, then that could have affected him over the length of you know uh, the. Uh, the amount of money that he would have been saving. So, right, that's so uh, that's, that's huge. That's oh, huge. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, in in that case, what was the situation? Uh, that was that um, his ex. That was his ex wife. His ex wife and uh, the ex wife had uh, multiple children of, of her own um, with, with him, and then this new guy was uh, living with them. They were going to church together. They were. They were going to Redbox and picking out movies together. They were doing all the things that two people in a serious relationship would be doing. Mm-hmm. Yep. I actually didn't know that getting a Redbox was criteria, but I'll, I'll plug that into my well, list. Well, I mean, it, it's just a, it's a piece of the puzzle. I mean, I'm not just saying that it's no, the only thing, but it's them going as a family unit to do sure. family activities. Sure. And it's, you collect as much information as you can and let the courts decide what the important piece of information is so that they can make an informed decision. Right. And so, Jamie, do you have to testify on cases like this? I do, and I have. Um, You know, typically, you know, you're in court for a couple hours and and out. Um, They're pretty straightforward. Um, In court, you know, I'm I'm testifying that, you know, I observed uh, or I I wrote the report that they're that they're looking at you know i will have both attorneys asking me questions about you know what's in the report um, there may be a photograph in my report that, that they want to discuss do you ever get challenged on legality i've never been challenged on the legality and i think that the the reason for that is because i'm very my, and I, let me say this much and i don't i know that um so let's say somebody hires me for 20 hours, okay, mm-hmm. and I do an investigation, I spend the 20 hours. I may end up spending six, seven, eight hours after the investigation writing the actual report. So in other words, right. I don't just write a quick cookie-cutter report. I have to go through and write a very detail-oriented report and check the report from all angles to make sure that at the end of the investigation, what I'm handing to my client and my client's attorney is as sound as possible. And I don't, so, actually, I mean, I don't charge clients for all that report writing yeah. time, but I think service to your clients to provide the most, you know, uh, 
concrete information that you can, you know, at the mm-hmm. end of the day. Well, that's interesting because uh, some investigators would, would look at that as billable time and uh, either sure. charge the client after the fact or include that in the original uh, fee. And I, I personally think you're doing the right thing to making sh- sure that all oh. your T's are crossed and I's are dotted before right. it becomes a legal issue. Well, I think it's our responsibility to provide the most top-notch service we can. I mean, it's at some point, you know, when a, you have to consider the fact that most people that hire private investigators, when you're asking somebody for a thousand and two thousand dollars or more for an investigation, you're talking about the type of money that the average individual doesn't just have sitting around. Correct. And yeah. when you get to that point, you have to kind of be understanding of, you know, what what they can afford and what they need versus what they can afford. And I think that, you know, if you have a happy client, that pays itself back a hundred times over than, than saying, okay, well, I made an extra four or $500 here because I charged them for something else, you know. Right. I agree. And, and I would have to say, and this has probably been your experience too, Jamie, that most people have absolutely no idea how much an investigation is going to cost because they don't realize everything that goes involved that's involved yep. and when you talk about you know s- surveillance um, the person may not go where they think they're going to go on the day you're going to do the surveillance right. so you, so you follow them or you've done everything you're supposed to do by the letter but that person didn't comply with your investigation sure sure and i and i've had cohabitation cases where i went out and the person just was not cohabitating with anybody. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate that those things happen, but, you know, it, we're asked to do a job and provide the facts, whether it's infidelity or whether it's cohabitation or any other type of uh, investigation. They just want the facts, and the facts and will... So I'm curious, did your client believe you when you came back with that information? Um, well, they have to, because I provide the evidence of that. So in other words, I, I photograph... Everything that happens on my investigation, whether there's evidence of it or not. So, in other words, if I'm proving that there's no cohabitation, I'm photographing the residents and the vehicles and the 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 ex coming and going from the house by herself. Mm-hmm. So it's not whether uh, they you know I mean they have to kind of accept the information for what it is you know and I mean I prepare them and I explain to them you know, what I did, how I did it, why, you know, what what they're looking at. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, you can't really dispute a photograph of whatever, you know. I mean, I don't create situations. Uh, you know, it's a photograph is a, a thousand words, I think they say. Right. Well, and that's a little that's a little different than the cheating spouse thing because a lot of times, even if you come back about with information that you haven't found that they're cheating, they were already convinced in their own mind that the person is cheating, so it's hard to convince sure. them otherwise. This is different. This is more fact-based uh, sure. information that you're de- developing. And, and, and that's why, you know, and I, let me say this much. I've had clients that say, well, I'm going to take a drive by the house and get the information, the license plate <laughs> number on the car for you. And at that point, I have to stop them immediately and say, look, you know, there's no. a reason you called me. 
you right. know, I'm licensed to do this. Do you really right. want to get charged with stalking and harassment because you drove by your ex's house? So, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up stalking because yeah. uh, are, do you have to be aware that there's there may be a restraining order on this person before you take the case? Yes. Absolutely. So, and if I had a situation where somebody, as a matter of fact, it's in my contract, um, in every contract that I sign with my clients, I ask that question and I confirm that information. And they sign a contract saying that there is no, you know, restraining order, order protection, you know, in, in place. And if there was, um, I just couldn't take their case. Mm-hmm. Now, if, um, that, if that person was represented by, the, uh, by an attorney, could you take if, the case then, even if, if they the had a restraining order? If attorney hires me and their mm-hmm. client has an order of protection, I'm working for the attorney. So all my evidence goes directly to the attorney. So in that circumstance, you know, yes, I could because all my information is going to the attorney for legal purposes, but I just couldn't give it directly to the client. Definitely. Okay, Jamie, this is is great. Thank you so much. This is great information. Um, I appreciate you coming back on the show. And it's we're at the end of our hour. So if you do you have any words of advice you would give uh, investigators that are interested in doing this? Um, just one thing I didn't cover real quick was return service requested. Um, mm-hmm. Something else that you could do um, where you can mail a letter uh, with junk mail to uh, your subject's old address and then have them send it back. Um, you, you may get a forwarding address to your new, your new address. That can also help. Um, as far as, you know, clo- you know, closing things out, I mean, the most important thing here is the timing of the investigation. You really need to, the second that you get that case, you know, jump on it, you know, be prepared, jump on it, and close things out as quickly as you can, you know, for your clients. Really good uh, point. make all the difference in the world. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Jamie. I appreciate you being on the show and sharing your knowledge, and the rest of you guys have a great week. Thanks for listening. It's PIC Classified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for being with us today. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 